come to me and using my wife. Very bad word. Hello, I am Daryl. And I am Petros. And welcome to episode one of Getting Defoe You, where from Heaven's Gate to the present day, join us as we get to know Willem Defoe in this dedicated Defoe podcast. So here we are. It's episode one. It's oh, out of the gate. The the Defoe commotion train is leaving the station, Daryl. How are we feeling? excited a little bit terrified but i'm mostly excited you know we've got a a delightfully varied first season to kick things off i'm looking forward to the way that we've got this planned out all the things we've got in in motion for for this podcast and looking forward to this you know for everyone to hear this first episode as well what about yourself oh i'm 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 excited we have had this conversation we're about to bestow upon the listeners all about heaven's gate what what kind of what kind of things did we get into daryl because we kind of yeah kind of this is a hefty one to to start off with (laughs) well we uh you know i think we've touched upon and we sort of touch upon in the episode we uh always said from early doors that if we were gonna do this podcast and do this podcast right we were going to start from where it all began for defoe um and that is in lineless dialogueless cameo form in what is widely considered to be one of the most infamous films in american history with heaven's gate from a from 1980 so we're not doing things by halves i think <laughs> i think that's fair to say but um you know we were very kindly joined by uh, the delightful patrick o'reilly of the vintage video podcast i think it's fair to say as we get into in this episode there is a lot of ground to cover mm-hmm. with a with a film like heaven's gate obviously you know we can only touch on so much we can't cover it all but i think we did i think we did a bloody good job of it we did our darndest right we we, yeah we talk about the troubled production history michael tremino auto cinema and the kind of new hollywood and maybe the death of it we kind of we cover all bases willem dafoe what was that joke that got him fired from the set of this film we try and guess what that could be (laughs) we we try our damnedest we tried to get to the bottom of dafoe's character uh what is what could have been you know and how this you know all kicked off all things to foe as well and of course exploding horses can't forget about exploding horses that's one of the cinches for films for me if it has a horse exploded if not and it's been treated humanely. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> but yeah, what I um, what an interesting film because I know you know we had a few trepidations about this film. I think just in general when we were picking out our first season. Now, obviously, we will we'll get into our complete sort of more detailed thoughts as the episode goes on. Uh, but for yourself, Petros, you know, before we got into this one, how how were you sort of feeling going into this one? Because the idea of tackling this one uh, made me sweat a little. Well, yeah, that's the same for me because it's a three and a half hour long movie. Going in knowing that there's minimal Defoe, it was kind of like, this is where we start. Like, and it kind of like is the first hurdle is the highest, then everything from here is going to be smooth sailing, baby. And knowing the troubled production of this and the kind of rocky reception it had, I was, I was like you, I was kind of bullets of sweat <laughs> raining down me being like are we gonna fill a guest for this are we gonna uh, 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 is it gonna be an absolute shit show but i think we pulled something 
wonderful out of the bag absolutely um i i was very concerned about being able to get a guess for this one but um uh the proverbial gates of heaven opened and out appeared patrick o'reilly um who has covered this before on his own podcast in which they're covering every film from the 1980s madness and we got into like a, a great conversation about this movie about where uh you know how it was received 40 years ago, how it's received now, um, how some of the messages in the film are still uh, the same, if not as relevant or stronger than they were back in 1980 as well. So, yeah, this is a, a very sort of an educating conversation I found, which kind of made me more interested in the film as well, which I don't think I would have said a few weeks ago before <laughs> before we recorded this one. But obviously with that said, we had a great season and episode coming up for you, ladies and gentlemen. But of course, if you do enjoy what we're doing here, if you enjoy the episode, then Petros has got some lovely socials to plug for you. Well, yeah, you can find us where you find all the goodness, Twitter and Instagram at DefoeUPod. Or you can always drop us an email. What would you like to see in season two and beyond? DefoeUPod at gmail.com is where you can send us those love letters amazing join us on the defoe commotion train this is the first stop and we've got a lot of track to cover and we can't wait to have you on board with us so without further ado let's get into this thing it's season one episode one heaven's gate enjoy Duh. Getting to follow you, getting to know all about Willem Getting to like you by watching all your films So this week we kick off our journey into all things to foe Back where it all started with the 1980 western epic Heaven's Gate. Defoe stars as Willie, making his first ever appearance on screen. Hooray! Um, now helping us to get to know Defoe a little better and see if this movie is heaven on earth or if we should just close the gate on it is the host of the Vintage Video Podcast, Patrick O'Reilly. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us on this adventure today. How the devil are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are you guys doing? We're not bad. We're good. We're good. Um, I, I think in many ways we are eager to get this episode sort of in the bank because <laughs> we thought, what better way to kick off uh, the next 3,000 episodes covering all of Defoe's work by one of the most controversial films in film history? Why, you know, why, why start subtly? Yeah. yeah. I, I somewhat feel like I've been whipped 52 times as it took uh, Chris Christopherson to get that take of him whipping. Uh, uh, getting ready for this podcast i feel like i've been whipped and i'm i'm, I'm in shape i'm ready to take on the, the 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 cattle what are they called the cattle the cattle wrangler society or the the, the bad men of this film i'm I'm ready to take them on i'm i'm I'm, a, I'm an immigrant myself so let's let's go let's get let's get to it here we absolutely go but before we get into all of that we've all new guests to the podcast we're always keen to know um as for ourselves on this quest uh, across the uh, the American plains, get to know Defoe a little better. Uh, for yourself, Patrick, um, you know how well do you know Defoe? What's your sort of history with him? What's your first Defoe film that you recall seeing? Um, I think the earliest one for me was probably Platoon, which uh, you know he's on the poster for it, and and uh, I worked at a, a blockbuster in high school, and so uh, I definitely 
rented that one because I was like, oh, this is like the kid of the guy that was in Apocalypse Now. I should watch this. And yes. <laughs> and it's a great movie. Obviously, he turns in an amazing performance. I think he got a Best Supporting uh, Actor nomination for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, that's definitely the first one I remember. But then after that, probably Spider-Man is the next one that I, that I am certain that I saw <laughs> early <laughs> enough. Uh, it's definitely the first one I saw in theaters, for sure. Definitely. I mean, I suspect Splatoon and Spider-Man will be two that come up very, very frequently for yeah. people's Defoe histories as well. I'd say I think that Spider-Man is probably up there with my first Defoe's as well, back when I was like 11 years old, not technically old enough to go to the 12 rated films. And this was one like I was I was just on the verge of tears. My mom was like, I, I have to go see Spider-Man, please. Like, I have to go see Spider-Man, <laughs> not going to let me in. And she said, I'm just going to lie to them and tell them that you're 12. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and <laughs> And then it worked, you know, God bless uh, Mother Edge's commitment to the bit and um, helping me get that first taste of formative Defoe nearly 20 years ago now. <laughs> was there anything about those two films that made you like want to seek out any more Defoe or was it kind of just, oh, he's, he's an interesting guy in these two films? Because they're very different. Well, I mean, his his countenance, you know, his uh, the, 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 his face is such a perfect match for this this goblin character. Um, and that's what has always made him such an intriguing character actor and and i mean he's grown beyond the definition of character actor obviously but i feel like definitely that's the thing that that you come away with at first is like this guy has such a dramatically shaped face and and he he goes he's like nicholas cage he goes 110 percent into everything that he does so he's never half-assing it no not at all um we we sort of for our preparation for just this podcast in general we have um little peek behind the curtain but just a curated spreadsheet of all these interviews and podcasts and articles and videos that we can find so we are going to be so well acquainted with his face (laughs) um and i think we sort of joke about it but this podcast could easily run for about 15 seasons so we're going to be here for (laughs) we're going to be here for about five years min so at at some point our faces are going to be as deeply lined as his are (laughs) um going through all these as well and obviously with all of this sort of said as well obviously defoe a lot to discuss in general arguably not so much in this film (laughs) from what you see on screen anyway well there's some background story yeah oh there's backgrounds and i mean and that's just heaven's gate in general (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you could speak for hours on this and obviously Defoe's got his own interesting tidbits as well um but with that said um you know talking about some of the uh, the informations and the bits and pieces for heaven's gate let's pass over to yourself petros let's get some of those uh de facts and de figures on heaven's gate Oh, here we go, ladies and gentlemen, with the de facts and the figures. This film is written and directed by Michael Cimino. The film stars Chris Christopherson, John Hurt, Christopher Walken, Isabel Huppert, Jeff Bridges, Mickey Rourke, Brad Dourif, Terry O'Quinn, Lost's very own Locke, turns up in this film. And for a few blink-in-your-miss-it moments, we get our very own cockfighting Willie Dafoe. Notable crew on this film, we have Vilmos Zygmunt as the cinematographer. This film was released. Well, we can talk about the many releases this had later on, but we'll go with the wide release it got on the 19th of November 1980. It was made on a budget of $44 million after Michael Cimino told them he would make it for seven and a half. And the film grossed a total of $3,484,331. 
dollars. It currently has a 6.7 out of 10 on IMDb, a Rotten Tomato score of 59% based on 46 reviews, and an audience score of 54% based on over 5,000 reviews. The critical consensus for this film, Heaven's Gate contains too many ideas and striking spectacle to be disaster, but this western buckles under the weight of its own sprawl, as we all like to know. Our first Willie Decyton, Willie Decyton, I'm, I'm making up words here. Our first Willem Dafoe sighting in this is at 56 minutes and 43 seconds. And his first line, I would imagine, first of all, it's in Czech. We get he's hurt and then he is asked to say it in English. And he says he's hurt talking about his cock. Obviously. <laughs> Oh, and you know, fifty-six minutes to get to do uh, some Defoe, and it feels like it. <laughs> and in terms of the, I suppose, a bridge in this film synopsis into its purest form, uh, we cast back to uh, the Johnson County War in eighteen ninety, Wyoming, where a uh, a sheriff does his best to protect the immigrant farmers from the rich cattle interests um, going on here with Heaven's Gate um, and. Patrick, I, I believe this is one that you have sort of covered on uh, your respective podcast, the Vintage yeah. Video Podcast, before. Um, was that the first time you'd seen the film then? Have you seen it before? And uh, do you recall what your first impressions were? It was definitely a first watch for me, and I went into it with all the knowing the baggage of uh, of what happened behind the scenes and and of the critical response to it and, and the recutting and re-releasing of the film, and uh, I loved it. And I, I would honestly love to watch the five and a half hour version that he initially showed the studio uh, promising. I think he said he would cut like 15 more minutes. He's like, don't worry, it's not going to be five hours. I'm going to cut about 15 minutes still. I, I, I want to watch that original cut. I want to I see every frame of this that got shot because Vilmo Sigmund's work is incredible. Every frame you could put up on a wall in a museum. And, and I love the characters. I, I love the writing. Uh, there's there's stuff that feels like it goes overboard, but I honestly wish that every movie was 100% practical and cost $44 million because then they could all look this cool. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're really calling for cinema to have more renegades. Yeah. Um, honestly. Auteur everything. <laughs> well, I, th I think we're at an interesting time for that, right? In that a lot of directors we have now and it's interesting that this was michael cimino's third film and even back yeah. in the like, 1970s it was like right i've i've made two films that have done all right and like the second one obviously his second film the deer hunter and the gangbusters like five academy award wins he won the award himself for best director so obviously kind of had that that mythic blank check that a lot of directors get but we're, right. we're talking at a time when obviously damien chazelle's last film was kind of felt like his kind of like basically his heaven's gate do you know what i mean it, like you get this thing with directors like this is the story i really need to fucking tell ariaster as well do you know, and, and they all seem to be really fucking long and really self-indulgent and it's there's something to be said about that that i don't i don't want to kind of lay all my cards out on the table now of my feelings of this film but i very much with films enjoy a director giving it their all and it kind of a grand folly that may not pay off uh, there. I think there is a, a great kind of enjoyment in films that just go for it. I'm a big fan of Francis Ford Coppola for that very reason. Do you know what I mean? The man has just put up $120 million of his own cash Ugh. to make 
a movie he's always wanted to make. I'll be like, surprised if that even comes out at this point. <laughs> it's, it's, it's wrapped. It's in the can, so we just yeah. Got... But it's got a lot of visual effects left. There's uh, you never you never know with that one. I mean, will some of the visual effects be you know waiting to a very very particular point of like twilight setting so we can get a shot, or is it going to be you know a bit more controlled? Yeah, it's going to be controlled. It's going to be controlled. Yeah, it's, it's digital effects, so it's, it's going to be very controlled. I don't know. I, I'm I always love when uh, a filmmaker gets to do everything they wanted with the movie because I think a lot of the time that that singular voice has an effect on me. Like when when it's not a a, a product of compromise, when it's a situation where this same person made every decision, so th- this will all fit together in one person's idea of what this story was. I, I always tend to appreciate that, even if it turns out to be something like Waterworld, where you're just like, you know, pretty much everybody didn't like this, and it's like, I don't care. It was it was epic. It was fun, I, and I'm a sucker for for uh, high concept stuff too. But this is obviously not that. This is <laughs> historical period drama. But yeah, I I was glad that he got to do what he wanted, and I'm also glad that he you know did the rounds uh, with the press even as the film was bombing and saying, you know, if, if the film's bad, it's my fault because I literally made every decision on this set. <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's obviously one of the most notable films in certainly american cinema for and right. you know we could just talk about at length all the behind the scenes and the the conceived stories of this thing as well and having him having you know 50 takes of this 60 takes of that and i think about some other he'd recorded by the end it was like it's like a million feet of like film right. or something yeah. which is just and then just locking himself in a room basically going to war with the producers just leaving notes saying do not do not let producers from united artists on set yeah they say that the film contributed to sort of the downfall of united artists but you know certainly a factor because it was just hemorrhaging money i think they said by like a week in they were already like days behind schedule and almost right. immediately over budget so the the legacy goes he was building sets knocking them down he i think i read somewhere that he built an irrigation system just right because the grass particular... kept dying and they wanted the blood to pop on the green grass <laughs> even though you can't see any blood right. on any grass it's all dust in the air anyway uh, yeah there's there's so many kind of uh, stories whether they're apocryphal or not it's kind of all gristle for the mill right like i right. think one of the stories is he bought land in montana and right. rented it back to the production so at, <laughs> at, at an exorbitant rate as well so he's charging yeah. ua like united artists all this money that's just going back into uh, Michael Jamino's pocket. The guy, the, yeah, the guy's he, he did the same thing with the score too. He he bought the rights to the music and then charged the studio for the music that he had bought from his own composer, who was like this twenty-year-old kid on set that wrote all the music for the movie. He's, he, I mean, it's fair to say, like in you know, not to use the terms too broadly, but Chimino is a bit of a is a renegade, and in many ways, um, you know, even though you read about this and that and this and that in the production, you kind of got. A, as you were saying, Patrick, like here's a guy who um, had the script about 1970, had to sit on the shelf for close to 10 years because there was no interest on it. And then suddenly, like you two, two, three films in, and then you've got a studio saying to you, do whatever the fuck you want. Right. And now here we are sort of talking about the, 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 the film, the ramifications 40 years later. It's just a very interesting thing, especially to watch it in sort of this day and age. You know, the lessons that studios must have had to learn from something like this, everything that must have had to come into place and effects. I know this the stories about I think the Humane Society for, for, for Animals sort of came into effect right. sort of after this as well. 
because they blew up their fair share of horses on set. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think Petros, we were sort of touched on this just before recording that apparently some horses actually got exploded. Right, and <laughs> and the shots in the movie of yeah. the horse exploding. <laughs> yeah, like like so the blood as well. Apparently, they were draining right. blood from animals and wiping it on actors for like the blood in scenes like you when you first meet christopher walken's character there's like an immigrant family kind of they've like gutted a cow or something i'm pretty sure yeah, they, that... they stole a cow and they've disassembled it to, to hide their yeah. tracks basically yeah and like you can tell you could tell like do you know I mean that you don't have to be an effects wizard to know that like oh that, that's, that, real. that's real that's the, yeah that's real like the cockfighting looks real which, which, which kind of I guess when we talk about that scene and Willem Dafoe's part in it, is Will, did Willem Dafoe commit a crime? Like, let's get this up front. <laughs> was he? Was he like? Because he is he is an owner of a fighting cock. Was 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 he? A... Well, I didn't think he owned it. <laughs> I think he was <laughs> he was pretending to own it. I, I think uh, no, de- definitely there's some animal cruelty going on that that may not have been uh, legally a crime at the time, but certainly frowned upon i don't know how long <laughs> cockfighting has been officially illegal it's um i suppose on the topic of the photo as we've sort of skirted around um obviously if you look on his filmography it will say heaven's gate cameo and you know make no mistake about it listener uh, petros went through this film frame by frame <laughs> to capture his first sighting which considering assuming we're all uh, versions of the movie that we watched i got the blu-ray and sort of the, the three and a half hour cut one right y- you know you, you've, you've got to have a fair innings to keep it out for defoe here and then he does turn up and obviously the story of defoe he was still very much a theater actor at this point with the wooster group and i believe i think as you said in, in the de facto and the de figures petros he speaks a few different languages there and I, I believe he said he lied to sort of get the role yes that he could speak the different languages yeah 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 he, he learned them yeah. phonetically he had a friend who could speak czechoslovakian and he said like yeah could you just write it out phonetically for me and he kind of did did what they want they oh went yeah God. this guy's great he's got a very he's got a very kind of eastern european looking face don't, don't you think like what well, yeah what right. do you think yeah like, yeah like the, the the face of defoe the face of defoe well, I think it's interesting too because they they tried to do the same thing with Christopher Walken's character and sort of imply in places that that he's uh, another immigrant in this town that has kind of turned on his people, or the, or they make some reference to that in the dialogue. But yeah, Willem Dafoe definitely has that sort of um, Eastern Bloc look that I feel like Hollywood usually populates these characters with. I think he said in interviews that obviously he he learns a, a script phonetically, and then I think they asked him if he could actually speak Czech when he was on set. But it seemed that he he had a bit of a history of sort of lying to get roles as well. Was it was it the Loveless or was it the, the hunger that he lied about being able to ride a motorbike to get that role as well? The Loveless, yeah, yeah, yeah. He does not ride a motorbike. As, that seems uh, like a dangerous lie compared to <laughs> I can speak Czech. <laughs> you know, two opposite sky sides were very uh very tricky scale to navigate there the the check to motorbike ratio where do we fall on it yeah you know it's it's a personal conversation for a different podcast i think the check the check to motorbike uh the check to 200 uh, rpm podcast so you know maybe that was the theater actor in him because i'm I know he said he wasn't really sort of looking for film roles at the time, but then they said everyone was on like a daily sort of contract, and then someone said, "Oh, you you have kind of a European look around you, and you got like a weekly contract." 
so his kind of screen time amounts to, I think if we're being generous, because he gets one scene where he's kind of, um, I think he's behind Chris Christopherson in like the cockfighting pen ring. Yeah. Like, so he gets maybe around about a minute total of screen sure. time. And I know before he got sort of let go from the film, he was supposed to have a few more lines. It was meant to be slightly more significant than what we got. I mean, the character got named. He's, he's called Willie in the film. So there must have been something there. But sort of the legend goes that they were sort of stood around and Tremina was preparing to set up like the lighting for a shot or something. And it was taking hours and hours and hours. And one of the extras said, do you want to hear a joke? Defoe says yes, uh, and then Defoe has the temerity to laugh at the joke, and then uh, Tremelia imme- immediately looks at him and says, "You're out." Like Defoe, you're out. You're done. <laughs> um, which is like, I think, mean, one of those stories where you can look back and laugh, but I'm sure it must have been kind of embarrassing at the time. But yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like he kind of got his revenge a little bit in the form of the the final cut documentary. <laughs> yes, an incredible full circle moment to be fired from your first film. And then narrate the documentary about sort of the downfall. What a huge failure it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, say one thing about Willem Dafoe, he will lie to get on your film and then he will wait 30 years to get his vengeance as well. Yeah, he'll make fun <laughs> of it for two hours with the documentary crew. I was waiting in that documentary for him to just like start talking about his experience. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Just kind of like, and then I was on the film and I got fired. Like, do you know I mean? like <laughs> just bust in over like the planned yeah. speech. That'd be great. Yeah. It's like, fuck you, eh? Fuck Michael Cimino. I'm Willem fucking Defoe. I know, Petros, like off record, we've sort of spoken about this and we're kind of like, we're talking in terms of like grand ambitions for the podcast further down the line. If for some absurd reason we ever get the opportunity to speak to Willem Defoe, I know, Petros, you were saying you'd love to ask him if you can remember cast your mind back 40 years uh what was the joke that got you fired <laughs> yeah and, and anyone has oh, a guessed what that joke could have been i know he said he was a dirty joke oh but it, i mean just, that could be anything it could also have been inspired by the scene like some kind of a cockfighting joke well this is kind of the thing because obviously with him having such limited time and he's in he's in sort of the cockfighting scene you can see him in the scene where they're in I think they're in Heaven's Gate and the, all the crowd is there and the, and Jeff Bridges is firing the gun and he's in a scene where um, Avril and Ella are riding their cart through the town and he's chasing it and then right, well, towards the end he... Um, oh, he's behind it as she's going down the road? Yeah, you can, if you like, again, all of these scenes are kind of blink and you'll miss it, but you'll see sure. him as one of one of the settlers who's like running behind the cart while they're just doing like Fast and Furious donuts right. in the cart. <laughs> if they do a Fast and Furious prequel, basically, this is, yeah. it's going to be a whole horse and cart thing. And then there's one towards the end where Avril, I think, is about to decide to go and join the, the settlers in the fight, and he's the guy who tries to give him this like big, sort of orangey-red suitcase. But it kind of made me wonder, and I suppose to throw it out there to hazard guesses, of these scenes, which is the one we think that Defoe was fired on? I, I think it has to be the cockfighting scene, because that, that would be the scene that requires the most setup. Un- unless it's, it's, it's a quieter moment in, somewhere else. I, 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 yeah, I reckon it's the cockfighting scene or it's the one in Heaven's Gate because that, that, that scene is pretty intense because we see him That's react true. to Jeff Bridges' character, like fire a gun. And I imagine, like, we've got extras in that scene crying. We've got, like, and I think Brad Dorif has talked about the fact that, like, those scenes particular took, like, he, he wasn't used to, like, 40 takes being a minimum. Like yeah. Mike Chimino would be like, right, do this take happy, do the next one sad, 
right now we're going to do the angry take now we're going to do the the crying take Mm. and then like was basically like making the film obviously that you make a film as you go on but was like basically writing the film to some degree as as he was going as well it's like it's a choose your own adventure production where you can you can decide the performance you want later Uh, (laughs) don't don't, we know that's coming with ai do you you know what i mean or like i don't like uh, uh, you'll be directing it in post (laughs) <laughs> if 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 Michael Cimino could see see the state of technology today, he would be rolling in his grave. But I, I think it must have been the Heaven's Gate scene as well, because I think it, I don't know if it was one of the producers. Someone touched on it in one of the documentaries, like how and obviously you, you can't sort of talk about a film like this and not note the desired perfectionism of Cimino. If it wasn't obvious already, but right. he could sort of um, sort of see the crowd of people and know where to place like very particular extras and you say well this extra needs to wear glasses this extra needs like a (laughs) wedding ring on their finger this extra is going to wear gloves so i think if anything it must have been sort of the heaven's gate rink and i and i suppose as well in defoe's position if someone if i've been stood there for like eight hours because the extra standing five paces down from me didn't have the right shade of grey glove or something and Shamina was just flipping his lid off camera. If someone said to me, do you want to hear a dirty joke? I'd be, oh God, yes, please. <laughs> well, I please. wonder if that other person got fired too or if or only the laugher got in trouble, not the guy who's like cracking jokes on this dramatic set. And I said like, Shamina, you've got an absolute jester on set. You're not going <laughs> to root this bad apple out as well. <laughs> I reckon it was Les Capay. I reckon it was the the, the journalist. He, he was there for a bit of a on-set shenanigans, being like, "Yeah, I'm really going. I'm really going to show people with my article how, how kind of walkers <laughs> this, how, how off the rails this film is. I'm also going to plant some seeds myself and cause some chaos." Yeah, I think I can't. I don't my know wife. if that was the article, but obviously it goes to show, like for the, for the time as well. Um, obviously, I guess with the benefit of social media and stuff these days, the, the, the viewpoint on films is obviously considerably different than what it was 40, 50 years ago. But back then, it was kind of like film critics and reviewers were almost like rock stars of their respective fields. They yeah. they held the power to make and break a movie. Obviously, notably like Roger, Roger Ebert as well. And I forget the, the exact um, critic who wrote it, um, but someone said that the film was like going on a forced four-hour tour of your own living room, yeah. which was uh, just a lot of a lot of like vitriolic, very sort of like personally aggressive press towards this movie. Because obviously w- when it came out, I know Jeff Bridges said this in sort of interviews as well, but they had the screening in New York. Like they just cut it in time to make the screening. Yeah. And then he said basically... <laughs> the credits rolled and it was just silence except just for like <laughs> yeah i think like, it's oh no there's tales of like nobody took the free champagne like and you know you've done it you know you've done a bad premiere when nobody's even drinking the like free champagne on offer they're like nah, i'm just gonna get a cab and get out of here and i think it's uh vincent canby said about this film which is kind of one of the most scathing things he said um Michael Cimino must have sold his soul to the devil to make the deer hunter. I think on this one, he's coming to, uh, to get his, do you know I mean, get his return on, on that, on that deal. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. the reviews were so cruel for this movie. Like after I watched it, I was like, Oh, that was pretty good. I mean, like, I know it's kind of a bomb, but I guess probably the critics liked it. And I started reading through the reviews and I was like, what happened? Like, what did he do to all these critics that made them so like 
personally angry at him about this movie getting made because it's not it's not that bad like people freak out about it and i really enjoyed it and i i love the look of it the whole way through but it seems like every critic was like set to go like honestly to the point that i my head starts working in conspiracies like the studio was mad that it cost so much money and they literally like installed these studio heads to give him a free check so that they would never have to do this again because now they'd proven that it wasn't going to work because they like spent money buying terrible reviews so that so that people would know when you let a director do what he wants this is what happens so movies should cost 10 million dollars tops and which version would they have seen like which version of this would they have seen right like it seems like there was bad press before even the premiere though like like you guys mentioned there was the one reporter who was allowed to go to set and immediately came back with all these horror stories of how he's making a terrible movie and it's like you literally can't tell that on set there's there's no way to tell that a movie's bad until you're sitting there watching it yeah i think this must have been a time i think where again like we say where where critics obviously held so much power so even a sort of one single person's account of it and even we film reviews this day and age you know you can you can take it at face value if you want. Obviously, you got Rotten Tomatoes, which aggregates all these scores. But the way I kind of view reviews is like it is ultimately just one person's opinion, and they yeah. happen to work for a place. Um, if there's a movie I want to see, I'm still going to see it. But again, that that person who was on set, it was like I think I think I, I read through that review. It was like the Washington Post or something from 1979, saying like how long all these shots took about the stories that he, which um, mean have been sort of like cruel to extras and various and like the battle scene towards the end. They weren't really using any stuntmen; they were just using local people. Right what was it called, like Camp Chimino or something, where everyone had to learn how to, like, crack a whip and dance and roller skate and Yeah, course. they spent weeks teaching everybody how to roller skate. And then the recut of the movie cut all the roller skating scenes. Yeah, so so I think that, uh, yeah, from, from what I remember, Siskel and Ebert, I think Siskel had watched the original, like, New York cut, which would have been the, the two-hour 15 cut. Oh, okay. Yeah, was that? I think that's the one that was ori- originally released. I think it was no, the, the the original, like the Criterion release, is of the three and a half hour New York cut, and then he did a re edit over the course of the next year, and it came out in theaters again in eighty one, an hour shorter. That's yeah, yeah. So it's the it's the the two hour fifteen one, right? That, yeah, that that he would have seen, and then it's the free uh, the three hour cut that the consensus of uh, reviewers would have reviewed, right? The, right. The three hour plus cut. But one of the things, like, like from my research, is that there was a filter used on this, like the original. Yeah, I I read that too. That it had like a sepia tone or something over over the picture mm. for the whole thing. Which, from watching this, and one of the things I will say, like about this film, is it, it's like it's beautiful. Like it you is. could, you can take out single frames of this and hang them on your wall, and people will be like, "Wow, what is that?" Like that is like they, they are these kind of beautiful Western landscapes and kind of, and he does do that thing amazingly well of painting the picture with these interesting faces. Like Willem Dafoe is a prime example of that. That is sure, a yeah. interesting face to like. Like now we know who he is, but even if you didn't, you just go. You're almost like I'd love to know that guy's story. Like there's yeah. the. There's the other guy in the cockfighting scene, the sm- like the smaller guy who's like saying like, "Oh, he he came onto my like he came onto my land, and my wife like stood on his foot or something like that." Yeah, he's hit really him with a rock. yeah, yes, it, he hit him on the head with a rock. And then um, 
and then the guy that got hit on the head with a rock like covered in bandages and like right it's like you could spend time with all of these characters so he's, he's doing something like amazingly well with that but yeah i can't imagine like this sepia tone i don't know it, it feels like an insult to yeah i feel like vilmos would have been so angry sitting there watching it like that it's like i'm i we had to shoot this entire movie in like a 40 minute span of the afternoon so that it was perfect lighting and then you put this filter on it it's like if ansel adams came back and there was like a picture of a tree with like cat ears and it's like what the fuck <laughs> not what i did yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this 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 is an affront to filmmaking yeah, yeah. let's rejig these picassos so the eyes and the noses are in the right place Do you know what I mean? <laughs> let's put googly eyes on the mona lisa for a laugh <laughs> um, it is it, it is like a very beautiful film it's one of those things like i just obviously we, we talk about like the five hour cut and i i don't think that the five hour cut will ever see the light of day at this no, point sure. but it kind of makes me think because you know i watched the three and a half hour one just the other day before recording and for me like i'm one of those people when a scene feels too long i'm kind of like i'm fighting myself to sort of pay attention to it i mean there, there are there are some scenes in this like i, I did feel just went on a bit too long it, it kind of makes me think like if some of these scenes went on this long in the three and a half hour one, like what the hell was in the five hour cut? I, I think that's part of why I want to see it so desperately is just like, what could you possibly have cut out of this that I didn't already see? I feel like I watched a string out of the dailies, but mm. honestly, I still <laughs> loved it though. That like the pacing actually doesn't bother me. I don't know if that's because I've been watching like too many early eighties movies and things were slower back then. And so, uh, but I, I think sitting down to watch it, I, it moves for me. And, and, that, you know, they're having this conversation at the pool table where he's like, hey, you know, they got this death list and they're going to round everybody up and kill them for 50 bucks each. And I was like, I'm just going to check and see how far I am into the movie because it's only two and a half scenes really into the movie. And I'm already an hour in. I was like, how is that possible that I've been watching this for an hour already? And we we've barely moved the story forward, but it didn't feel like an hour to me. It felt like 20 minutes. It felt like a first act. What do we think of like of the prologue? like do do like do we need do do we need that prologue do we need the epilogue like or like the the film kind of works without them right like i think technically speaking the story makes sense without it but it is one of the only indications we get that the chris christopherson character is not a member of the class that he's defending for the rest of the film so when when we bookend hmm. it with him on the yacht and with him graduating from it was like harvard right that he's and and so we're seeing that he's like a member of this high society that his friend goes off and works with the the lawmen hunting these people down um but he specifically took sides with with the people being oppressed by this system um so i i think in a way it is important i don't know if it needed to be 30 45 minutes of people (laughs) waltzing around a tree um, <laughs> but but i still like watching it and and you know the day new waltz obviously i i enjoy for that whole sequence too i i love the fact that with that scene they had to get a factory in the uk to open again to be able to make all of those hats because they're a very specific type of hat that just wasn't made anymore and michael chimino's kind of dedication to detail was right. like we need these hats and it's like i'm sure i i, I do you know what I mean i'm sure people weren't going like and i think he said he, he says right in an interview like an interview from 1981 he's like he's like if if i'm a perfectionist yeah what whatever if like the part of my job is to make sure that stuff is on screen that people watch it 
and go, or if they spot something, they go, oh, that wasn't of the time. Right, yeah. That takes them out of the stories. Like I'm a storyteller, so if, if I've got to do all those things to tell my story, then so be it. But like the fact that yeah, it, it, it does sound a little bit like when you when you put it in the context of he literally reopened a factory to make this specific brand of hat. It almost feels like a Brewster's Millions trap where they were forcing him to find a way to spend forty four million dollars on the movie. <laughs> the, the train as well, the 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 train that he wanted for that scene when he goes into right. uh, Star Wyoming took like they couldn't get it to the shoot location yeah they had to put the train on other trains to get it to set because it wasn't wide enough to fill a track (laughs) and it was like they had to figure out like a route through five states because it wouldn't go it was too tall to go through certain tunnels oh my god it's just even more stuff upon like even more stuff to just like it kind of yeah it kind of all sounds a bit doom laden from yeah. the get-go, right? You expect <laughs> him to like literally moving mountains to get this train to set. Like, yeah, like yeah, oh, yeah. the tunnel's too short. Okay, well, I guess we'll just have to move the Sierra Nevada. And it's like, what? <laughs> I don't think that's gonna work. So you you flash forward a few years and you've got Werner Herzog moving like a right, boat exactly. by hand as well. I wouldn't put that past Jamino, a bunch of people carrying a train over a cliff. <laughs> that's amazing there's just a legacy of like renegade directors like what's the next biggest vehicle i can make right. human beings move right um, and so and I some can... of it you you want these stories in the in the papers you want to be like yeah i was such a perfectionist that i didn't let them move this side of the set back six feet i made them disassemble the entire set and move both sides back three feet like like yes. it and the Kubrickian sort of a ratio of footage to what ends up in the film like these uh, a lot of the time it does feel like these directors are trying to outdo each other with their ridiculousness oh he he, he purposely wanted to shoot more film than francis ford coppola shot for apocalypse now like really that was that was a goal of his yeah and that there's 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 like shots of him on set with basically like placards that say like thirty five thousand feet of film, like past, like, and he's kind of there with a big smile on his face, like, do you know what I mean? Like, they're the milestones to be achieving. It's like- <laughs> that that reminds me of like how you have like American military bases where they're like, well, we have to justify the spending on this base, so we're just going to empty a bunch of rounds into this wall for like yeah. an hour because otherwise <laughs> we won't get enough money to buy all the same rounds next year. So you just yeah. have Jamino go like record that mountain for two days because i want to break a record yeah. well, what is it yeah it's like it's like if you don't spend your budget like in an office you won't right. get that the company then realizes oh they can they can do that for cheaper so it's like right. oh we'll just spend the money on like knockabout shit do you know what i mean like what a new <laughs> fax machine you want a new printer like, like let's get it in because we're not we won't have that money next year if the big right. wigs come around and figure out that <laughs> we, we can do it for less this this is the thing isn't it obviously it, it feels like such a, such a crazily apt description of like um heaven's gate is the equivalent of firing a gun at a wall just to just to justify spending but obviously sort of circling back to that prologue as well like at the start it just felt so long obviously you saying that patrick like he gives a lot of more um i suppose justification and context to uh, avril's character sort of had me thinking okay like in that line i can i can sort of see it uh, in a more defensible light but the first time i was watching it i was kind of like well chris christopherson and john hurt here and they look at least about 30 years they older do, than everyone yeah. else that they're stood next to but part of me was kind of watching it like 
this is going on for a while. This kind of just seems like, oh, we just need an, a justifiable excuse for John Hurt to do a monologue at the start here. Yeah. I mean, John Hurt said in an interview where, in that scene where they're giving like the graduation speeches, it took like five days to film and those five days cost more than the entirety of the elephant man which if legend is to be believed um he had so much time between shooting he went off made the elephant man and then came back right <laughs> yeah to finish which... heaven's gate <laughs> and and uh, elephant man also is a film that gets gets uh some criticism for its intro and outro though they're not 45 minutes each but those were the only parts that the studio was like can we cut this stuff because it's it's literally the only abstract part of the movie and it's david lynch you gotta let him leave something in there (laughs) (laughs) you've got to let lynch be lynch you've got to let some birds spread their wings i suppose speaking of john hurt that i found his character I wasn't really sure what to make of his character because it obviously he has that sort of graduation speech and he's like I don't know like the cock of the walk of like Harvard and then he's with I forget the actual like the cattle wrangler society and he spends the rest of his screen time as the character just drunk just giving like oh well this isn't very good is it oh yeah they're giving him dialogue and facial expressions to imply that he is not on the side of the people hunting these immigrants down but he's also not helping them in any way so he's he's clearly a villain of the piece and by the time he ends up getting killed at the end of the film i was like thank god i've hated this character the whole time (laughs) because he's just making these silly jokes and he and he he's just trying to be witty while he's helping them murder all these immigrants it the mm. character doesn't make a lot of sense and it's weird that it, that he's played so sympathetically i guess to kind of like look at the f- like what could be a thematic reason for that character yeah it's kind of just to stress that kind of burden what is it they say like those who do nothing are just as bad as those who do something right do you know what I mean sure, like sure. The fact that like he has a choice to be able to stop this and like as we see in that first scene i think he in his speech he he kind of sets out the stall of what this kind of film's message is right he kind mm-hmm. of like gets into the fact of like we should be helping people and stuff even though he doesn't but i think his right. i think his character is somewhat that idea of like oh if you just stand by and watch stuff happen you're you're just as evil as the people. You may not be firing a gun, but... Yeah, and the fact that he's in this room where people are voting on it and he's so shaken by the proposal that they're going to start going out and kill these people without warrants and without judges. And instead of being there and trying to continue to make his point or to prevent people from voting the way that they're voting, which seems to be fairly unanimous, he just walks out of the room shaken by it. And it's like, why you you haven't voted yet. You need to stay there. You need to make your point and you need to prevent this from happening if you can. But to just walk away, it's yeah. like he he gave up immediately. Well, they, they obviously the, the the cattle wranglers, they have that. It's just a groom of like guffawing men in suits, puffing on cigars and drinking or champagne or whatever it is they're drinking at right. the time, probably whiskey or brandy or something. And it, the film sets its stall fairly, you know, blatantly saying uh, these are the characters who view sort of the, um, the European settlers as... I think they use it like thieves and anarchists, I think is the term that they use to describe them all. And they say that uh, we've got 125 names on this list. It's been approved by the governor, the mayor, the president of the United States has signed this off as well. Then he just hires a battalion of goons on that train they had to train in just to go and sort of start killing people as well. Yeah. And when it gets to those sort of scenes as well, and, and the scene we sort of talked about earlier with Christopher Walken's character champion when he 
fires that shotgun blast through that um, material, and that guy's like guts are spilled out. Some of the scenes like that I found like very affecting. What's uh, is it Sully or Cully? I think there's, there's there's an Irish character that Avril knows who sort of runs the trains. Oh yeah, the the dad from uh, from Encino Man. That guy. <laughs> <laughs> you get that scene where he's trying to ride off to try and tell everyone that like all this uh, this like militia is coming, and then he is. Can we point of... out the fact he's been sleeping in a bush? as well he's been sleeping in a bush yeah well that was just he's he's trying to be undercover and he wants to warn these people before the hunters get to town but they know what he's doing and it doesn't matter to them that he's not a cattle wrestler they know that he's about to warn the cattle wrestler so that makes him an accessory so they decide that that's reason enough to kill these people and suddenly it feels like they could come up with an excuse to kill literally anybody that they felt like it's 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 a very sort of like shocking thing um this sort of wyoming cattlers association just going to those sort of lengths and i suppose certainly in modern times as well i know when the film started getting reappraised around about the mid 2010s and stuff when i suppose the trump administration was sort of coming through and even over here in the uk um with recent governments there's always been kind of a an anti-immigrant sort of rhetoric that's been sure, pushed, especially yeah. now as well it kind of sort of hits that message home that you know whether it be uh, 1890 or 2023 it's one of that i guess that old saying the more things change the more they stay the same yeah um i don't know that our governments are going to the, the quite the lengths of organizing a militia on horseback to go they, and, are. Um, they, they are essentially do you know what i mean they're, they're, yeah, they just they're don't in, know how to ride horses anymore that's the yeah they're just they're, <laughs> yeah. they're emboldening like they've not gone to capture me you know basically yeah, I mean, certainly in the context of the film as well. I've, again, like I say, it, it paints it very clearly that there are a lot of people in uh, in the town. Is it is it Casper, Wyoming that they're in for this? It's somewhere in a very uh, sort of authentically built town as well. Oh, where they shot um, it. Um, I, th- I think in the story, I think it says it's something Wyoming. I could be completely wrong. Yes, Casper um, is the name of the town that they're, they're supposedly they're in in the film. But I, I think it's like Calaspe or something like that is the name of the actual. Where they shot, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one. Um, but but it sort of sets Avril up as a sort of because we meet because he's kind of like drunk on a train, and then there's that bit where he he buys a gun and some I think some brandy or something, and then he breaks up a fight outside. But you, you sort of get a sense that you know some characters are kind of reluctant participants in this sort of battle, this war that's going on. Obviously, I mean Christopher Walken's character, Champion, he is on the side of the oppressor really at the start and the only reason he eventually picks a side is not because he sympathizes with um with the immigrant's plight it's because um a woman he's romantically interested in is is affected by it as well but but that's actually one of the more disappointing changes from historical fact is because he that character the name he uses is a real person and that real person was uh one of the cattle wranglers he he was he was on the other side of the johnson county conflict he was not one of the people hunting these these immigrants and so it just feels like a terrible way to memorialize the character to imply that he was on the opposite side of the war um and that he only died because you know the girlfriend that he that he wished he had but who was picking someone else over him ended up uh, luring him across the line yeah i mean he's i suppose looking at champion as well his character is an interesting one because he seems obviously like he's going to be this absolute sort of I don't know, really deadly hitman at the start. And he's riding past that long line of uh, sort of immigrants who are obviously walking into the town, carrying their wares and stuff. And he shouts like, go home at them. And you don't like, you don't really know what his deal is really sort of going to be 
for a lot of it. Him and Avril come to blows once or twice. Um, and then by the end, well, I, th- I think my note said he got shot about 600 times. <laughs> yeah, something like that. That's a, such oh. an epic shot, though, that, that scene. It's like on, on par with Sonny Corleone just getting yeah. perforated yeah. outside the cabin. One of the things I've got in my notes here is Chekhov's wallpaper. <laughs> is, is, is is the fact we get that whole that whole thing of like him making a big deal about the fact that his little shack shack has got wallpaper and then only for that to come and rear its head when a hay bale is fired into the side of his of his shack and then like yeah. you see the wallpaper just going up in flames i was like oh beautiful payoff like i love it <laughs> i also love that i mean that was a that was actually a thing that people did we, we've covered a couple movies now set in like turn of the century where people literally wallpapered their house with newspaper because they were like it's cheap and it's technically paper so we can put it on the walls <laughs> and it's like is that nice is that nice to look at it's got obituaries looking down at you as you're eating your breakfast <laughs> seems weird the, yeah some some, some ads being you know I mean? like yeah just like yeah i do need an oil change thanks wall roller skates (laughs) oh yeah i'd love to go to the heavens gate for a nice little little skate around yeah maybe i will pick up a couple of definitely placing ads in the local paper (laughs) (laughs) made me think as well like i guess from a historical standpoint i didn't realize roller skates have been around that long i thought they just like turned up in the (laughs) 80s or something i couldn't have been more wrong yeah Um, people were dancing in barns whilst fiddlers went around for 10 minutes at a time just fiddling away roller skating i didn't realize so much history about the roller skate here we are look at that so that guy that guy who is the roller skating fiddle player is the film's composer right yeah and he looks like a child in that scene yeah and and one of one of the band as well is t-bone bonetti as well i think like they wrote that song like as a band and then i think mimed to it so like there's even an authenticity there right it's not just getting actors to mime that they're playing instruments it's like no let's get the actual band to mime right and i think we even uh suggested in our in our review of the film that that we just assumed that he had some other composer lined up and that things fell apart and so he just asked the musicians that he already had on set playing musicians it's like <laughs> do any of you have any original music do you want to like score the whole film and this one kid was like yeah i'll do it <laughs> i've already spent 14 million dollars at this point why yeah. just <laughs> why looking for something more recordings? expensive than uh, than the options the studio has given me <laughs> i'm looking to really bloat the budget here just go just lose my mind does anyone want in on that uh someone puts the hand up like can i roller skate while playing the fiddle yeah you're a mad bastard you son of a bitch you're in <laughs> which i which i imagine is how it went kind of made me think about like heaven's gate in itself though like I, obviously the, the title of heaven's gate it's this place in the town that's called of um run by jeff bridges character who's is it john bridges is, is his character i think uh john yeah. l bridges and he's kind of like uh, an entrepreneur who is also, uh, you know, on the side of the, the settlers. They have that whole, is it like just like a whole underground thing underneath Heaven's Gate where he sort of houses a lot of them like bunks and stuff. Yeah, where they kind of keep people hidden and and keep people safe from the rest of the the outside towns. Oh, that that scene took me about thirty minutes to get through because I basically had to watch it frame by frame to see if Willem Dafoe was in it. <laughs> like, I'm, get, I'm getting I'm getting like Vietnam flashbacks to, to to me watching that frame by frame to be like, 
is Defoe going to be hanging out of a bunk here? Like, where's he going to turn up? (laughs) (laughs) He's just doing, like, pull-ups in the back of shot or something. Who knows? It's kind of making me think, like, I once had, this is kind of off topic, but I once had, like, a trial shift for a job in kind of, like, the bar of a roller rink when I went to university in Southampton. I didn't get the job because it turns out, like, pushing the safety buttons in on roller rinks is, on roller skates is really difficult. (laughs) And the people are there, they had just, like, these, like, gnarled, like, thumbs and, like, chip nails. I'm like, I kind of don't want that. But the guy who was, like, the manager, like, they had, like, a, a, a session going on. And I still remember this day, he was just, like, you know, you always get those what that one person like a roller rink or like an ice skating rink who's just like doing one eighties, like skating backwards and just right, right, pirouetting right. around people. He was that guy, but he was kind of like doing like spins on one foot around. And in the course of like one lap, he did I think he did this intentionally, did like three spins, took out about four children, <laughs> um, and then and then he just like rolled up to the counter to say, Yeah, I don't think it's gonna work out, and then just did another lap and I was like this is one of the sweetest ways I've ever been fired in my life. <laughs> that's that's why that guy has that job because he just wants a job where he can knock children over. Yeah, <laughs> and he found a way to make it work. He found someone that will pay him to do that. Do what him. you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> why did it sound like you had a trial shift on the set of Adventureland as well, Daryl? <laughs> <laughs> or some kind of eighties teen comedy? Yeah, that's definitely you know I mean? a, a Rockwell move to just go clip a bunch of children. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think there's going there's to be some B-roll footage of me out there, completely unwilling participant. And it's going to get released in like five, ten years. I'm yeah. going to get cancelled as a yeah. as a, you got to wait for it until you're running for office, and then immediately that that'll come up. Someone's got dirt on me out there, and they're waiting to drop it. In so. the chat of Champion, and I think this kind of this moment in the film is kind of indicative to the folly that is is Heaven's Gate. Is I'm not sure if you you guys picked up on this. It's when Champion goes to visit Avril, like, uh, for, like, a a meeting in, like, a bar or something like that. In the background, out of the window, you can see a man juggling. Juggling? Yep, I saw that. Fire, fire, fiery bowling pins. Yeah. Just in the background. And it's like, do we need that? We don't, but I I want it. to you for the first, like... 30 takes there was not a guy juggling fire in the background. he's like you know what this needs i just realized holy shit get someone who can juggle no get someone who can't juggle and then we'll pay to teach them to juggle <laughs> we'll circle back to this yeah on the worst yeah. juggler on set and we're gonna pay him to be the best juggler <laughs> the set of this sounds great right it's kind of like what do you want to like what do you want to learn and i'm sure you could have just said Hey Michael, I, I I've been thinking about getting into like like embroidery, and he's like, "Leave it up to me. Don't worry. Like you'll be yeah. the best embroiderer. You'll be making you'll be making blankets by do you know I mean patchwork blankets or yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> any kind of small thing that somebody like has a hankering to do." So that's like Michael, even if it's not like, useful to the film at all, they'll just be like, yeah. "What are we, what are we building over here? Oh, that's a that's a luge because somebody wanted a gold medal <laughs> in the Olympics. It's like that doesn't make sense. Why are you building that? Uh, we can afford it." Well, it's like, free. At Camp, at Camp Tremino, there is a skill for everyone. Right. Everybody was like with doctorates. Yeah, it's like <laughs> that and like the, I guess that he kept the kind of crew and the builders busy. Is it, is there a, there's a story that he just burnt down one of the facades for one of the buildings because he was yeah. like, 
I just wanted to see how it looked. And yeah. then uh, made them build it for the next day of the shoot. It's like that. <laughs> Burn it down after each take. <laughs> Yeah, why why waste perfectly good wood when you can be setting it on fire <laughs> i wish that you know he, he said like he moved the set like three feet instead of just one one side six feet back yeah if he, he just, wanted he wanted the street to be wider and so he said yeah, move both sides back it would be great if he just did that constantly and this the, the street just kept getting wider and wider and like just like just he's there, people just go, notice it yeah i'm just burning money now i'm just literally like kind of like <laughs> You may have given me a blank check. I've gone mad with power. I can do whatever <laughs> I want. Well, I don't think they did give him. He took the blank check, right? He kind of like held them hostage and like they, well, they, the, they, the studio messed up because they they were so desperate to have him do his next film with UA that they they basically did say we will literally never tell you to stop spending money. Just go spend as much money as you think it takes to make this movie. And so then he he used it as an infinite money trick. Yeah, and he beat them into a corner, right? Of the fact, like, got so far down that even if they, the fact that their whole proviso was they wanted to work with him, so if they fire him, they're not getting what they. It wasn't about the film that yeah. they wanted to make necessarily. It was the fact that they wanted Michael Cimino, and even when they did try and fire him, that kind of that backfired, like, on him, and like when they tried to instill people, like fired the producer she was off the film and they came in it's like still he kind of like said well you're not allowed don't even speak to me don't come in the editing room i don't want to see them on set right basically like, it's like you can't fucking do anything I'm, I'm making this movie by hook or by crook i feel like that movie was the beginning of the the death of auteurship because yes. uh the 70s were definitely the decade of the auteur um but heaven's gate was so you know publicly derided that it not only killed auteurship and like these blank check deals for these studios but it killed westerns completely for a, a good chunk of time that they just like we're not going to make these anymore because people don't like them and it's like no they they'll go see a good one <laughs> you just have to make a good movie that's all it takes yeah it's just all we want all we want it was just a nice film we were just looking for a hit I think I think just a lot of delusions of grandeur and just desperation to have that defining movie for their um for their production company. I mean, I read uh, someone obviously take it with a pinch of salt. Um, there was a book called The Hollywood Hall of Shame, where apparently uh, someone on the inside of production, and again, this is like an anonymous person, so again, take sure. it with a pinch of salt. Uh, but they were quoted as saying, um, "A lot of people wonder how a movie like Heaven's Gate could cost forty million dollars. I'll tell you." 20 million for the movie, another 20 million you can bet for all that cocaine the cast and crew were using. <laughs> you know, um, so judging from some of the stories, I wouldn't doubt that that's possible. I guess uh, Tom Noonan, I think, said that he was on set and like was screwing up a scene and then the director literally pulled a gun on him, like a loaded gun, and pointed it at his head and he's like, we're going to do this again and you're going to get it right and he got it right on the next take, but like, all right, this is not how you direct a movie. That, that's straight out of the William Friedkin book of directing, yeah, right? Exactly. Like, like, I'm going to be here with a 12 gauge shotgun. The ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, this 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 film was was still nominated for an Academy Award, right? It was nominated for Best Art Direction. Yeah, uh, yeah, and um, it was nominated for Razzies. Are we going to talk about Razzies on this show? Oh, I mean, 
do we want to bring him in on episode one? You know, behind the curtain for us, Patrick, as you may or may not be aware, both myself and Petros separately host like individual Nicolas Cage podcasts. And I know certainly on mine, I've done my fair discussion, fair share of discussion on the Razzies uh, because I I haven't looked in depth to see if they've ever had it out for Defoe. But there was like a 10 year stretch from, I think, 2007 to 2017, where every year they nominated Nicolas Cage for like a worst something or other. Yeah, I think that they finally let up on him. I think when there was that whole like debacle about them sort of going after Bruce Willis in in light of his illness being more well known to the world as well. Yeah, I'm I I'm think... glad that uh, people are kind of fighting back against the Razzies because it's always been a disgusting tradition. <laughs> like yeah. more often yeah. than not, it's it's just them being cruel or or basing their their vote off of some random public opinion that doesn't necessarily fit. And especially in the cases where they nominate like children for this and it's like you might be preventing that person from finding work in the future by nominating that child for a razzie saying they were the worst actor of the year oh yeah i know they think it's funny but it's not really yeah ryan kira armstrong was nominated for firestarter last year right or this year oh sure yeah who starred alongside nicholas cage in the old way speaking of westerns and is one of the best things in that film so like and i think she's she's um She's going to be in, like, the new Sam uh, Eshmael film with Julia Roberts. So, like, our, A friend of ours wrote The, the Old Way, Carl Lucas. Um, he he, he guessed it on our show. Uh, we talked about um, the Boogans with him uh, because Amazing. he's a big fan right. of, like, 80s monster movies. Amazing. I mean, yeah, as you said, Petrus, like, uh, Kira's one of the best things about that film. And then it, I think one of the most... Again, this is me sort of uh, tunnel vision it on Cage. One of the most egregious nominations they had for Cage. He was um, he had a, a very, very, very small role in a film called Snowden from 2015, 16, mid 2010s, and he was in the film barely two minutes. Is that the Joe one? Is it, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt? Was yes, yeah, 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 yeah. The Oliver Stone movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and he was yeah, like I say in the film barely two minutes, three out of push. And for what he, I think he did it as, as as like a favor to Oliver Oliver Stone. Um, and what he did was fine. You know, it's nothing noteworthy. It's absolutely fine. And they nominated him for like worst supporting actor of all the films of that year. They nominated him for worst supporting actor. And I was like, this th- at this point, this is personal because you haven't got him yet. That, yeah, that's a personal nomination. And when you do it for a cameo, like, like, and it, I, I find it just as obnoxious the other way when you have Christopher Plummer getting it for all the money in the world, where it's like, he's in one scene of the movie, they literally shot it seven days before the nominations came out, and he got Best Supporting Actor for that. It's like, he's barely in the movie. What are you talking mm-hmm. about? It's, it's so often the nominations are just for the headline and not necessarily for the performance. Well, yeah, I, I, to bring it back to this film, Michael Cimino won the worst director at the the Razzies and whatever you can say whatever you want to say like about this film and like the kind of delays and the kind of onset shenanigans and things that went wrong I don't think it's a a badly directed film no it's a joke that they that they even said that because anybody who watched the nominees that year knows that John Derrick's Tarzan the Ape Man (laughs) <laughs> was not better directed than Heaven's Gate. Um, it's literally just a guy shooting a softcore porn with his wife on an island, and it's terrible. It's really, really What's bad. What's the name of that film? 
Tarzan the Ape Man with, John, with Bo Derek, uh, who who also got the nomination for worst actress. But her, but John Derek, the director, was nominated for worst director, and he lost the Razzie. I mean, I was just having a quick Google of interest there, and um, this is a film we will get on get onto later in the season. Uh, but Willem Dafoe was nominated for Body of Evidence for worst actor at the Razzies in '93. Really? So. The Razzies, if you weren't on there before, you just made the shit list. Um, <laughs> I mean, actually, going back a little bit further, the 1981 Razzies, they actually nominated Chris Christopherson for Heaven's Gate as well. Right. Which, I, I, I suppose, like, shoehorning it to the performances. Is, like, I think I've seen criticism of Christopherson's performance that maybe it's a bit sort of... Um, it's very dry. It's very subtle. Dry, yeah. Um, But... And honestly, he's not my favorite part of this movie. If if I were going to change anyone in the cast out, it would be Chris Christopherson because I'm never particularly enthralled with him in anything. But I don't think he's a bad actor. I believed the character. It's just not somebody who I was especially interested in in this film. And And I think it does hurt to cast him who he probably looked 40 when he was 20. He has like this very <laughs> like skeletal face that... um. And I know, I know he's obviously Chimino is going for these sort of extreme features, but I, I do think he was a weird choice for that character when you could have found someone who looks 20 and then just put a beard on them to make them older. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I thought, I thought Christopherson was fine. You know, I can sort of take it or leave it in the performance. Um, obviously John Hurt, as we said, kind of felt like he was a bit underutilized. It was just a weird thing. As as you said, Patrick, like, I feel bad for these people, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Right. <laughs> but certainly one of the standouts for me, um, obviously there's a story with her involvement as well, is um, Isabel Huppert, who plays Ella, like, um, Diane Keaton and Jane Fonda turned down the role, but Chimina really fought for Hooper, who was... Were they dating at the time? I'm not sure. I think from, from the documentary, um, Chimina really seemed to go to bat for her. Yeah. And then they said, like, right, we'll go out to France. She can do a reading. If it works, cool. If not, we'll sort of move on. But I think by all accounts, Chimina really dug his heels in and she got the role. I, was... I think she did great. Yeah, I thought she was great. I thought she was definitely one of the the, the top performers of the movie for me. I suppose like for, uh, for yourself, Patrick, obviously I think we sort of agree that she was great in the role here. Um, so was she sort of the standout for you or um, was there anyone else that sort of stood out a bit more? You know, somebody who I really like um, and he's only in a couple scenes here, but Jeffrey Lewis kills me in this movie. He's so funny. That's the the guy in the in the cabin with uh, Mickey Rourke uh, mm -hmm. the, in the newspaper oh, cabin. The guy yes. with the dirty face who's telling him how yeah. if you get attacked by a bear, you could just grab his tongue. Um, <laughs> like this, the voice that he's affecting it kills me, and and he's just such like I I just love him in everything. But uh, but I was particularly enamored by his character here because he's just such a funny, interesting guy. He, he's actually Juliette Lewis's uh, father, but uh, he's 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 so great. He's so great in this one. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anyone who kind of I don't know. I I I, I like I like Jeff Bridges in this just because he is he seems yeah. like he's just Jeff Bridges, right? He's gonna, this kind of avuncular <laughs> nice guy, and I know a lot of people like said that Chris Christopherson. I, I think at the time was like going for a divorce as well, so he probably wasn't the mo most fun guy to hang around with. But like sure. on set, Jeff Bridges would take photos with people, would kind of hang out with with with, with people, and it's got got history with Chimino right he's in uh Thunderbolt and Lightfoot alongside Clint Eastwood in that so yeah, yeah there's and that, that was for Chimino also right 
yeah, 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 yeah. And like, well, well Tremino was on a, a very short leash, right? He had Clint Eastwood, who's producing the movie, like Tremino would be like, let's do another take. And Clint would say to him, no, we're not doing another take. No, 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 no we're done here. <laughs> any, any movie that you have with Clint Eastwood, he's, he's trying as hard as to direct it himself. Except when yeah, yeah. he's actually directing it himself, and then he doesn't try very hard at all. <laughs> one and done. That's, yeah. the, that's the classic Clint way, isn't it? It's like, yeah, we've done this one. Yeah, I'll there's the there's scenes in Bronco Billy that which he directed where you know Scatman Crothers will flub a line and they just leave it in the movie because they're like, <laughs> I don't have time. I don't have time. We're not going to do that again. <laughs> Those are the stories that we live for. Another one. I don't know if you saw the same story as well. Sort of just going back to Isabel Huppert a second, but they apparently some of the UAE executives felt that. Christopherson and Christopher Walken, who I will quick say, right, side yes. note, young Christopher Walken, what a striking man. Right, absolutely. Um, they apparently felt that they were considerably more attractive than Hooper to the extent they thought the audience would wonder why Christopherson and Walken were not were, were not having sex with each other and why they were <laughs> lusting over Hooper's character. Which is, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, they're, 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 they're striking men, but that Isabelle Huppert is an absolute smoke show. Right, right? she's, she's totally gorgeous. It doesn't make any sense. Chimino should have just been like, fine, we'll switch that around. We'll we'll change the triangle. We'll have uh, <laughs> Christopher Walken will be the prostitute, and we'll just shoot it the way you guys. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, uh, Ellie's character is is uh, like the the madam of a brothel. Um, so I've read apparently, apparently some of the other women who were in the brothel that Chimino got them to do like live and well not work but live in an actual brothel for a week i was gonna say it, it servicing wasn't, like, the crew there <laughs> it wasn't that dedicated to the craft <laughs> he got them to sort of stay in an actual brothel to sort of get an understanding of what it was like and all, all that business as well and then i think was it i think bringing it back to jeff bridges was it her cabin or the cabin that they use as like the the, the whorehouse was yeah it, no jeff, it's it, it was that? Yeah, her her cabin that that everybody was staying in the whorehouse cabin. Uh, Jeff Bridges bought it after the production wrapped, and he still owns it apparently. <laughs> Amazing! I love it. That should be an Airbnb like four... <laughs> that you could just go. Oh, that'd there. be great. Get, get the get the Heaven's Gate experience. Yeah. <laughs> if you overstay your welcome, somebody rides a hay bale <laughs> on fire into the side of it to get you the fuck out of there. <laughs> Perfect. You have to stand around for eight hours before you can go to sleep <laughs> until the lighting's perfectly aligned through the window <laughs> on your face. And it comes with a Blu-ray of the five and a half hour cut, so you can just sit there and watch it. It, it, if that's the only way to get the uh to get the fucking the, the, the chimino schneider cut of uh evans gate so be it i'll take that <laughs> i'll take that punt i'm just too curious at this point but just to, by the time he gets towards the end of the film as well obviously um you know where we talked about um chekhov's wallpaper right and, and I, I will say the action scenes in this are sort of the ones uh, definitely for me where, where i felt maybe the, i think this says more about me as a viewer rather than you know, looking at the the artistic merits of the film, really. But when the, the, there are shootouts that are happening, obviously there's that you know really sort of awful scene when um, Ella is attacked in her house, and then sort of right. Avril, he's kind of like for some reason he's just on the roof already, ready to strike, even though he was in like the town in like the scene before. But he's ninjing dudes, and he bursts in with like the double revolvers, right. and I was like, that's kind of badass. Yeah, it's awesome. And then, it, champion coming out the flaming house with double rubber well he's got the wooden stool as like a 
He, yeah, Shields. his body armor, but he's not really holding it in front of himself. He's just kind of got <laughs> it in one hand, like, look what I found in there. Anyway. I'm I mad. love this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it means too much of me not to go out all guns blazing with it. And obviously one of the most affecting fights is the uh, the battle of the settlers versus the sort of militia at the end right. as well. Where they're sort of reenacting the the Harvard fight, where there were the people defending on the inside of the circle around the tree, and the people on the outside, and then Avril's been waiting twenty years, right, for this twenty years of Harvard experience, which I thought it was obviously my my main gripe with that scene is that there's so much dust being kicked up, you can't see what's going on, right? So you don't know who you're shooting at, really, especially in a circle <laughs> fight, which is the worst kind of fight. Well, you know, you've got dust on all sides. You've got the militia on all sides. You know, they've got their sort of hastily cobbled together, like siege fortifications. And then reading into it with obviously like a lot going on, a lot of extras. But apparently, like, these weren't stunt men and stunt women. These were just people that they got back into Camp Chiminos. Like, we're going to teach you how to ride a horse for like, I don't know, a day. And then I'm going to need you to fall off it. Like, I own a bakery. What is, <laughs> what, what is happening here? But but that that sort of whole the chaos of that um, uh, the shootout at the end. I suppose to throw it to yourself, Patrick. Like you know, how how did you sort of find that whole sort of you know that culminating experience as well? Well, it's definitely like terrifying because by that point in the film, it, you're reaching this sort of a, a climax between uh, these two parties, and and the this is the maximum aggression, and and they're leaning back on their their education in college for like how to fend off each other in this particular formation but also they're like borrowing from ancient rome and it, and it feels like it's almost like they're fighting through time the way that they're facing off against each other it's 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 more it's more to the point that this class war has been going on for a lot longer than just mm-hmm. the events of this film that this is something that's been happening for all time and these people are all educated enough to know how to fight uh, even if they can't necessarily defend themselves legally, that uh, that these people, when it comes down to it, this this is how all these conflicts will end. It's just people shooting at other people, and uh, but it's it's such an epic scene. You have wagons flipping over and people just getting crushed, dynamite going off all over the place. It's insane and and it's captivating. You just get sucked completely into it, and you care about every single person getting shot at, except for the John Hurt character. You're like, screw him, he can die because he's not he's not helping anybody. He's just here. Is it, is it another, another small moment I like in this this whole battle sequence as well? I'm not sure if either of you picked up on this. Is there's like a stenographer just right. sat under a tree, like kind of <laughs> writing what is going on, almost yeah. like the yeah, like the kind of war correspondent exactly, like, journalist. Yeah. There, <laughs> but then they catch a bullet in the head, right? Don't they? Doesn't that person just knock out on the desk? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'd love to think what he was writing. All of a sudden, it's yeah. like, it's like, and then they fired, and then ah! Oh no, there's a bullet coming right for my face. <laughs> I don't know why I'm not moving. It's going so slow. The pain, the pain is the the pain is excruciating. I must die now. As, as, as the pen, as the pen kind of like tapers off the side of the page. I love it. Perfect. I like to imagine that his last page must have been. I can hear gunshots, but there's so much dust I can't see anything. Wait a minute, is that a gun? Uh, Pointed that's right the last. At me. <laughs> I'd imagine that's that's the last thing that uh, went through his mind before that bullet did. 
obviously they a lot of casualties and then it's canton who's basically the head of the cattle society and yeah. he's kind of in many ways like the architect of a lot of this destruction he's like uh fuck this shit i'm out i'm off to get the army and then they sort of turn up doing a bigger circle. So basically whoever does the biggest circle right, wins exactly. the wars in the 1800s, apparently. But then Avril has that kind of that just such grim reality hitting him in the face. Is like, this is just the way to sort of get you all off the hook to say that you've been taken into the army custody. Yeah, just pretend, um, oh, uh, the, we arrested them, so everything's okay. You don't, you can stop shooting at these men. It's it, it just kind of, again, it's kind of like a, a more things change, the more they stay the same. Because right. over here, they, you know, to sort of sort of date the podcast a little bit by the time it comes out, but they bring in a lot of stuff now in the government where they're basically taking away a lot of people's rights to peaceful protest as well and you can just be moved off the street and arrested if they think you might cause trouble down the line it's almost like a very minority report thing and it kind of makes me think like this is almost why you get some kind of like rioting to an extent because people don't get heard and this sort of horrible echo of like this movie was made in like the late 70s it was about the 1890s and again here we are in the 2020s and things are still not great yeah just a horrible sort of taken all of it and then obviously with war um well, and i suppose for christopherson's character avril as well he goes for all of that and then he doesn't end up any better because uh, jeff bridges gets shot in the chest and gunned down and then right Anna but then he shows up war. later and he's and he's not dead like i they we see him fall off a horse i think in that shootout but then he shows up later and he doesn't even look injured i like i I was very confused by that. Yeah, I, I, maybe the bullets in the 1800s just uh, don't pack quite a punch yeah. um, <laughs> compared to y- your modern weaponry. Yeah. I mean, it's not I like- mean, I, Obviously, it's a really, really shocking ending where they're just trying to leave their house and go on about with their lives. And then Canton's like, we ain't done, not by a long shot. Yeah. Um, and Jeff Bridges told the story of like he was supposed to get shot once reach in his pocket for the gun take it out get off a few shots and then they would start popping the squibs off <clears throat> but every time he did it and reached in for his gun they kept popping the squibs off so he just had this massive bruise on his arm <sighs> and then if you look closely as well whilst um avril is cradling ella you can just see jeff bridges on the floor quote unquote dead breathing away in the background yeah. <laughs> Noticed that. yay <laughs> that's <laughs> like Avril go and check on your boy like he's got a chance he's still yeah, she's right. a lost cause go save Jeff there's still time <laughs> for you two together <laughs> that, that that was the romance that we were all fighting for <laughs> yeah it's sad that we don't get to see two people roller skating off into the sunset at the end of this film do we we get we, we get we get old man Christopherson on a on a luxury yacht I'd imagine off the time because he's got a fireplace on his boat, right, which yeah. like kind of like I was like, what the fuck is going on here? This seems like this a counterintuitive. Wouldn't quite pass a uh, building code no, today. I uh, I don't suspect. <laughs> I suppose I was I was trying to sort of like think about the ending, which you know, twenty more years have passed on. I think he's he's now with the woman who from he the was graduation sort of, ceremony, yeah, from the from the graduation, yeah, and I suppose it's implied. Because he carries this like frame picture throughout the film that right. Because Hooper they... finds it in his closet at some point, and she realizes that he's he's not totally over this person. Yeah, so I, I was kind of confused. Like, has he been sort of married this entire time? Did oh, something happen? It's a, a lot of stuff is unspoken, and then he's just 
sad in his nice little like blue suit and his on his expensive yacht as like the film ends and i kind of wasn't too sure i guess what to make of everything because it's kind of a the epilogue definitely like you know takes a different direction tries to hit you with like an emotional note on the first viewing i again it kind of left me thinking like huh like i say like for patrick that, that epilogue on the yacht like i don't know if that's if that made sense to you if it worked for you I, yeah, I, th- I think the point is just to be that he sort of returned back to, he retreated to the class that he belonged to from the start. And that, like, he didn't just leave Wyoming and go off to the coast. Like he's so far that direction that he's off the coast. He's, he's in the middle of the ocean and on a yacht where there's no way to gauge how much money he has. <laughs> it's just, he, he could, he could be a billionaire at this point. We don't know. He's just, he's off in the middle of the ocean, just letting the water take him in a direction he's not fighting anymore he's letting he's letting earth decide where he goes and i I guess like the kind of the grand message that you can take away from this film as well that like an appeal to those people with money like ultimately you are the ones who make the decisions right and like i say like a lot of time vote with your wallet and stuff like that or like as as we see with like tv shows and stuff like that like i'm a big succession fan and like one of the episodes of that fairly recently is like we see it's the people with the money who make the decisions they had like an election episode where it's like oh it's not the it's the media and the kind of money people who make kind of make these decisions behind behind closed doors to some I, I think there's an episode in the third or fourth season where they're literally like there's just a bunch of people sitting in a room deciding who the presidential candidate's going to be and someone's like isn't there like a primary that we do for this and it's like that's not going to happen this time this time we're just going to pick a person and then, and yeah. then they'll yeah. win the primary yeah so like that 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 that's terrifying but like it's it's showing like yeah it's like this appeal to like you can enact change and the fact that jim avril kind of came from this wealth decided to basically i don't know because it's like philanthropy work to be to to turn his back on his high society life and actually enact some change with people who actually need it and it's yeah i, I, I think it's, it's a noble message to the film it's just whether people will sit through the three three and a half hours of it and like right <laughs> to, to 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 get to that and it I, th- I think it's commendable in the fact that it doesn't like you said daryl it doesn't spoon feed you a lot of stuff a lot of stuff is unsaid and i don't know that's 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 pretty great in films i find a lot of time as opposed to like finger wagging going this is yeah. bad like this this film just portrays <laughs> something that happened and then just kind of like take from it what you will but and i do think the plot is also fairly simple like there's there's not like a lot of subplots and there's not a lot of character arcs to follow it's it's really one central conflict and people that are affected by it in different ways which is why i find it so confusing that almost all of the negative reviews say oh there's too much going on they couldn't decide what to focus on it's like there's just there's only one thing going on it's just the johnson county war that's it yeah the whole movie is just about this war when you and you find yourself over the long running time as well like the more i spent with the kind of immigrant community even like some of them get like hard no speaking time whatsoever but just just having these long protracted scenes of just seeing their faces i kind of felt like i was like getting sucked into that community right absolutely i really cared like when we kind of get to that final confrontation i was like oh man like we we've had kind of yeah chekhov's the the bad guys are coming throughout the film 
and it's kind of you just you just kind of get to wallow in these scenes of subtly getting to know these people and then by the time you get to the end of it it's like oh fuck i really yeah. don't want them I don't right. want these you're ruining, you're ruining for all of them you, you want them to survive this conflict yeah i mean like you said it's i mean my sort of like grand overview on the film is like while i i, I don't think it's the the, the the critical disaster that a lot of people at the time made it out to be um it is it's easy to be turned off by any films that are you know longer than 90 minutes who doesn't look like a 90 minute movie um but it is on the face of it it is like a simple story there's um you know there's a love story going on there's a story of war as well it's good versus evil like it's not a complicated plot to follow it's not a complicated like there are more confusing films out there from from a a cinematography standpoint and a storytelling standpoint like as you said petros it's a lot of things in the movie sort of make sense um there's questions that you can ask there's reflection still to the present day you you know with, with sort of the treatment of you know people who may be different from ourselves and i think it's just a very interesting sort of tale which you know as we said at the top of uh, of the episodes you know the, the the behind the scenes stories of this and what chimino may or may not have done and what may or may not have happened you know those are sort of conversations and interesting tidbits into themselves but um ultimately there is a film here which is stands on its own merit would i personally consider it a work of art i think i'd have to sit with this one a little longer maybe view it one or two more times but it's it's still a very interesting point in cinematic history to certainly look at as well yeah and i certainly think on that note as we start uh i suppose wrapping up this inaugural episode of season one um there are some important bits of business that we have to determine as well first and foremost although our time with Defoe here today was fleeting. We have to ask of the times that we did see him on screen. Did Defoe do Deface? Uh, Patrick, would that be a yes or no on Deface from you? I, I think we do get one really wide grin from him uh, over <laughs> over Jeff Bridges' shoulder. I, I think he does. I think he does Deface. And Petros, uh, Deface, yay or nay? Well, I, I'm going to defer to my screenshots i took one of my personal favorites is the face he pulls as he is like chasing the car it is and 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 you'll you'll see you'll see guys if you're following on the socials we'll be posting all of these screenshots as (laughs) as the episode goes out that that that's a great face he's he does a he really gets the sorrow and kind of uh fear in his eyes when when jeff bridges fires that gun yeah, I think, as I said in, in the conversation, just Defoe's face in that background, like him as many other of the kind of extras. And I think it was Chimino's reasoning for kind of getting all these interesting looking people is they almost act as like this kind of a Greek chorus of like uh, they're, they're throughout the film and like we kind of get, and I, and I imagine we would have seen more of Defoe with, within the film and just subtly get to know them throughout so i think yeah having an interesting face like the foes and yeah when you see that screenshot of him chasing the <laughs> chasing the, the cart you'll see he very much pulls a, a defoe like face so yeah it's a de, de face it's a ds for the face for me 
<laughs> and I think I've got to make it a three for three on the face as well. Um, again, like he doesn't get a lot of screen time, but and, and maybe we're a little biased because we were intentionally looking out for him. But the um, the time we got with that beautiful face um, was enough to face for me. And of course, it is the beginnings of many defaces to come. So um, you've got to put a, a historical exclamation point on that as well. But perhaps our most important question that we ask at the end of every episode, um, did we like the film? Now, obviously, we um, we don't just give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. We don't just give it a yes or a no. We, it's our own... Um, our own sort of trademark rating system. Does this movie get a defriend or does it get a defoe? Patrick, for yourself first. Heaven's Gate of 1980, defriend or defoe? This is a big defriend for me. This is this is a movie that, that I feel like I'll be uh, an apologist for for years to come. Um, right. Anytime somebody decides to make a joke at its expense, I'm going to be like, well, have you actually watched it? When was the last yeah. time you saw it? Like, what version of it did you see? Because uh, this movie uh, has a lot uh, to offer, which is part of why it costs so much. But I think uh, I think what he turned in is magnificent, and I think uh, that Chimino should still be very proud of this film, despite everything that's happened since its release. Fantastic! So that is one the face for Heaven's Gate, uh, Petros. <laughs> it's gonna be a light friend for me. I know we kind of don't really have a sliding scale. I think I can't really, I, 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 I can't lie and say I loved it because I, I, at the time I found it tough to sit through. But interestingly, talking about it and kind of like listening to and like reading kind of appraisals of it and kind of, I, I, I do think it is an unfairly maligned film that just, very I, don't, I think, it's been scapegoated as as a way to kind of kill, kill off the new Hollywood. Like, and I don't know that Chimino wasn't the only one who kind of, yeah, yeah, he was massively scapegoated because if you look, like uh, Scorsese did New York, New York, which isn't particularly great. Um, Spielberg did 1941 again. Like a lot, a lot of those directors have kind of gone off the boil. Uh, by the late like into the yeah the late 70s into the 80s like what was it <laughs> coppola was basically like it's like michael cimino took the baton from apocalypse now and then coppola went watch this i'll set up a studio and destroy it whilst making one from the heart so <laughs> so, so yeah this is a this is a light friend from me but i, I could imagine it's, it's a film i already want to re-watch I, i'll be interested to see if any kind of rep cinemas here in the uk screen it i think i'd probably appreciate it a lot more if i didn't have the kind of attention span of a gnat and kind of uh watching it on a <laughs> tiny tv in my little shed here to be able to sit in a cinema and kind of really enjoy those vistas and the the scenery that uh, Vilma Sigmund kind of captures with his cinematography I'd probably appreciate it even more and yeah I'm fascinated about this film so it's got it's got to be the friend for me what about yourself Daryl uh, well I echo a lot of those sentiments and I'll be honest this was kind of of our lineup this season this is one that you know from the very beginning we said we're going to tackle Heaven's Gate first we're going to start with the first of foe we're going to do it right we're going to start at the beginning um and just sort of seeing how long it was all sort of the stories behind it part of me was kind of dreading coming to this film and i'll hold my hands up like i was kind of prepared to 
go into this and just hate this film and just be, be quite negative about it, really. And I think part of the enjoyment is this is the sort of, you know, the wild stories, the true stories behind the scenes as well, which is in some respects a lot more interesting than the film. But watching it again, while I also, on a first viewing, I can't say that I loved it again. I don't think it's as bad as the critics made out at the time. But I, in the same sense, in the same vein, I don't also think it's the exquisite masterpiece that some people make it out to be. I do think, again, kind of to, to steal to steal your sort of summary, that looking into the film has made me a lot more interested in it and has made me a lot more sort of knowledgeable of the production and want to like read upon Tremino a bit more, look at his work a bit more, and being able to sort of listen to sort of podcasts about this and read into it has just made it very interesting for me to the point where there is a sadistic part of me that kind of wants to watch that five hour cut i'm not gonna lie just just to see what came out what could they possibly have taken like there's two hours of footage that are not in this movie that we saw there is a quote from somebody who said like oh what like what is like what is the what is the longer cut like and all their response was it's longer yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it took longer to watch i remember that much well I mean, I mean they have 10 minutes of them sort of in the roller skating rink just going around in circles so i have to imagine there's at least another hour of roller skating i hope so um, that's what i need is more roller skating scenes locked in a vault under some ua executive's office somewhere in hollywood but i will say um after the first viewing as i was kind of thinking about the film a bit more and thinking about it a bit more i was so prepared to go into this with a, a defoe but I think I have to, again, it's not a sliding scale, but I'd have to sort of give it a uh, a polite defriend as well. Um, right. It's I think on the whole, like, I, again, doing the research and going down the rabbit hole, it's kind of won me over. I'd Again, I'd, I'd be interested to watch it again. Maybe not anytime soon because it is a, quite a demanding film. Yeah. But a few months down the line, a year or so down the line, I'd be interested to revisit this one as well. So... That is the first episode of season one, Heaven's Gate. Three to friends on Heaven's Gate. Start as you mean to go on. And with that sort of, you know, that, that positive rating in the air, as we sort of wrap up, um, we sort of, as, as an open floor, is there anyone else having um, other final thoughts on uh, Heaven's Gate or Willem Dafoe as, as we sort of bring this one to a close today? Uh, no, I just wanted to say I'm I'm excited for for the rest of this show and and to see uh where this takes you and uh i'm curious are you are you doing all like are you gonna do the documentary that he narrated are you gonna do like tv appearances or is this is this a straight filmography we will be taking diversions between seasons to little tidbits whether they're shorts video games or kind of tv appearances so this will be yeah we, we we will go for it all to get to know willem dafoe but by the time we we meet the man, he, we, he will not be able to move for us to be like. Well, you said in this interview at this time, you did this <laughs> in this film at that time. You, 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 you oh yeah. What was it like for the mocap for um, Beyond Two Souls and uh, working with Elliot Page? Like, yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah. It's gonna be an extensive deep dive into Defoe. All right. It is um, certainly something where we're trying to coin push a term as we're sort of motoring forwards. We're going to call it our defoca motion train. <laughs> no, nothing's going to stop this train, and we're going to, you know, pit stop at every defoe that we possibly can um, and uh, get to know this man yeah. by hook. 
or by crook. Tunnels ain't going to stop us. We'll, we'll we'll put this motion train on another train to get us where we need to go. We'll right. go through five states if we need to, baby. Uh, one last <laughs> thing I need to say about this film, just because just I would feel uh, absolutely terrible if I didn't mention it. There's a slight fuck you to Michael Cimino to the fact that, yeah, is it four horses were actually killed, many more injured, and the kind of animal cruelty within this film is kind of unforgivable to right. some degree so and I, the I loaded of, weapons on set pointed at actors isn't great and uh yeah and also the general money laundering uh approach to filmmaking is is a little frustrating and and i, I think we're in an interesting time like as we're recording this this will give away when we're recording this but uh reviews are coming out about martin scorsese's killers of the flower moon which could have been an author making another bloated western and they seem like they're good, ladies and gentlemen. So, as much as this was the death of New Hollywood, seems like we're in a in a in a, in a new generation. It feels like this is like the 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 capper to to the folly of Heaven's Gate that maybe we're going to get uh, Scorsese's epic uh, western, which seems like it may be treading on some similar ground. It's a, it's at least as long as Heaven's Gate. From yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah, they they said cinema was back with Morbius, but it's back right now, baby. <laughs> Did they though? <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> obviously, with uh, with that said, um, obviously, Patrick, thank you so much not only for guesting on the podcast, but being the first guest on the podcast and you know taking heaven's gate again once more around the block i know you've touched it on it before but to come back and do it a second time what a hero you are you, <laughs> you were the hit you are the hero that johnson county needed but for all the uh the listeners um where can we find you and uh, all the things you do online and the socials and such uh well we are the vintage video podcast and uh basically all our socials are available at linktree slash vintage video pod and uh we're if in for anyone who didn't know basically we're covering every wide release of the 1980s in chronological order so we're about 350 movies in we're going to be finishing up 1981 in like november of this year and then uh and then i think we have about five years worth of 1982 to get through based on the calendar i'm putting (laughs) together right now it's i will die before we finish the 80s for sure but we'll keep going until that happens so if you want to hear a person die very slowly go check out our show amazing not not the death but the show Uh, amazing um (laughs) petros we thought we we had a slog in in for us on this podcast but kind of takes the pressure off a little bit thank you for that patrick um but all the links in the description down below um if you want to go and check out uh their tremendous endeavor and podcast as well but um as we come to the end on heaven's gate and we shut that gate behind us to move on to the next defoe venture um it is left for us to wrap up and say i've been daryl i've been petros i've been patrick and we've been getting defoe you well there you have it that is episode one one episode down nine to go the defoe commotion train is officially pumping on all cylinders and what a way to bring it in what a way to bring it in what a monumental film to kick us off with and as i sort of said at the end there um i think i am prepared for anything now where you can tackle heaven's gate in episode one like these mavericks here you can tackle anything i think again i'd be interested to watch heaven's gate again but not for some time soon i'll probably have to give it about 
two decades, <laughs> 20 years until I watch <laughs> Heaven's Gate one more time. But obviously with that said, uh, thank you, dear listener, for listening. We're very excited to get this podcast on the way, as we've said, and we are very excited to have you with us on this journey as well. And of course, we've got a tremendous season coming up. We've got some great movies coming up. We've got some great guests coming up as well, which notwithstanding, episode two, we have a delightful one for you with 2012's Tomorrow You're Gone, where we are joined by the lovely, fantastic Alice Boyd-Leslie from the Drunken Horror Podcast. We really get into it. And as a reminder for you, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, as we are a new fledgling podcast looking for those scraps of worm from the mother bird's mouth, you can head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, wherever you're listening to this right now, and leave us. What can they leave us, Daryl? Well, you can leave us all sorts of things, you know, hopefully nice things, but preferably if you want to find us on, you know, your streaming platforms of choice, you can follow us, you can subscribe to the podcast, and it would be delightful if you've enjoyed it to uh, share it around, give it a five-star rating, because it helps the podcast grow, helps more people get on board the Defoe commotion train. There are so many carriages on this train, and we'd love love to see more of you there. So, and you know, hopefully we'll see you in the next one. We'll see you on the socials as well. Yeah, where you can find us on all the socials. So that is Twitter and Instagram. I say all the socials. Twitter and Instagram. Maybe TikTok. Who knows? But you'll be able to find us under one handle and one handle only. And that is Defoe U Pod. Or if you'd like to go a bit long form with your response, maybe you worked on Heaven's Gate and you're listening to this right now, or you have differing opinions to us, which we welcome, you can reach out to us at defoeupod at gmail.com. Amazing. So reach out. Don't be a stranger because we'll be here for the next nine weeks in season one covering the highs, the lows, and all things Willem Dafoe in Getting Dafoe You, a dedicated Willem Dafoe podcast. Thank you again for listening. If you have been, we'll see you next week. And until then, uh, take care of yourselves, look after each other. Bye-bye now. Always your friends, never your Dafoes. Getting to follow you, getting to know all about Willem. Getting to like you by watching all your films. Getting to follow you, we'll start with Heaven's Gate. And we'll watch them all till the present day.